Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arse Blog Arsecast right here on arseblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for being here. Hope all is good with you and yours. And from a purely footballing perspective, why would it not be after a 4-0 win over Everton last night? Zinchenko and Ketia! Perfect. There is a gorgeous arrogance about Arsenal now. It really is. They are enjoying every second of this. Very few football matches are uncomplicated, and there were certainly some moments in the first half where Arsenal struggled a little bit, but the second half, the way we just dominated and got on top of the game after the after the two goals just before half time control that second half, played Everton off the park, off the park, and thoroughly deserved a 4-0 win. And the fact that this was our game in hand, a game we really, really had to win, makes it all the sweeter. And we've got plenty to get into in this particular podcast. Just to sort of clarify what's going on in terms of the podcast schedule, because of the way this season is panning out, I think there is, in the aftermath of a game, a real desire for discussion and debate and and just content, right? So rather than wait until Friday, I thought it would be a good idea to do a podcast today. It's not an Arsecast Extra, James. I I assume, I assume he's off having another meeting with his Steve Martin-esque dentist. You'll be a But when you're good and when you're winning games and when it's enjoyable and when you win the way we won last night, I think it's important to get something out today. So this podcast, this Arsecast, will take the place of the regular Friday Arsecast, but I don't want to leave anyone in the lurch on Friday either. And as a gesture of my goodwill and love to all of you, in the week that Arsblog turned 21, the website was 21 this week. I will make our Patreon preview podcast for the Bournemouth game free to everybody to listen to this week. So that'll be available at some time on Friday afternoon for you guys. Keep an eye on Twitter and all the usual places. I'll I'll probably drop it on the main podcast feed, so it'll just show up in your podcast app as normal. So there you go. You get a podcast today and an unexpected bonus podcast tomorrow as well. Do remember, if you would like to support us on Patreon, you can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash 
Arsblog sign up. You get this preview podcast. You get all the uh, extra bonus content that we produce every single month for all our wonderful Patreon subscribers. So there you go. Right. We don't have James, but we do have another James. And I'm delighted to welcome back to the show from CBS Sports. It's James Bench. Hello to you. Hi, Andrew. How you doing? I'm very well, thanks. Obviously, uh, in part because of Arsenal's 4-0 win over Everton last night. The other part I won't talk about live on air. Uh, it's none of anyone's business. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? Um, I'm very well. Yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, a, a quite excellent game of football last night, I have to say. It was uh, it had a little bit of everything, didn't it? A bit of, a bit of tension followed. And that's kind of what you want is you... You don't want just to to win five nil in the first twenty minutes. Like, give yourself a little bit of delayed gratification, <laughs> and then when it comes, it's oh so oh so sweet. Well, listen, I will not object at all if Arsenal feel like going five nil up on Saturday against Bournemouth. Yeah. Let me just put that out there for the record, because I do think it's fair when we talk about this game to analyze the the first half and maybe the first forty minutes, because at the forty minute mark, I did not envisage Arsenal going in. 2-0 up. And I was thinking to myself, I was sort of like uh, watching the game, doing the live blog, half composing my halftime tweet. What do I say about this? What do I say about this performance? And I was thinking about saying something like, I, I feel like, you know, based on what we've seen in this first half, it may well be the substitutes, the bench that has a, a significant role to play in deciding this game because you know we do have options on the bench now and it wasn't really working the way we would have liked I mean did you or do you sense or did you sense you know going into this after the draw against Newcastle which was hard difficult game after the draw against Brentford which was another really difficult game and after the defeat to Manchester City there was maybe just a bit of nervousness at home because of everything that's going on, the pressure, the season, this being the game in hand. Maybe the last few games have not been quite what Arsenal would have liked at home, and that maybe played into that first-half performance. You know, uh, much as it might might pain me, I think you have to give Everton a bit of credit as well. Uh, They did stay very organized, very well-disciplined. They made it as difficult as they could for us like they did at Goodison Park and and we were struggling a bit to find the answers yeah it's funny when you uh when you go through those recent results at home it has been a sticky patch at the Emirates and I think you know Arsenal was I I, I don't necessarily think that's affected the atmosphere I have to say wasn't at the ground so it's for once it's a bit harder to to make a judgment call um pre-match but I think it's natural for supporters and everyone and I've felt this at other games that after a little while, everyone starts to sort of imagine what might happen. You know, I think back in before the World Cup and even in, you know, the in December and January, there was just a real sense of, look, let, let's enjoy this. Maybe people didn't quite believe it was going to last. And if that's the case, I think that's totally understandable, given the team that Arsenal are fighting for the title. Um, but now I think it seems pretty clear that, like, it might not. They might not win the title, but I don't. I don't they don't seem like a team that's going to fade before the final few furlongs. And look, that's you know that inspires tension in the the ground, doesn't it? Everyone knows when you're at the top of the Premier League that those drop two points against Burnley, they could be critical, and that you don't want another re- repeat of that. Mm. Like you said, I think you know when we look at all those games, the truth is that what really happened is an opponent came up against Arsenal and played 
pretty much brilliantly. I think, you know, Brentford and Newcastle in particular, I thought City weren't by their own standards, but they, they did a fantastic job of spoiling for Arsenal, making it extremely difficult. And Everton did that so well as well. Like, to an extent, and, you know, whether it's from an Arsenal viewpoint or actually just wider in football, we don't tend to celebrate defensive football mm. in the way we perhaps did, you know, before the Premier League became the biggest, most glamorous league in the world. I, I, I think there's almost a a view that if we are that, every team should be willing to to come out and attack and play possession football, look to have 70% of the ball. Everton didn't want to do that. What they did do was set up extraordinarily well in a bank of four and a bank of five, counter-attack with, I thought, some fairly mm. promising pace and purpose. And look, if they had cutting edge in that team, I, I think they would have been leading. Neil Mope had two two really good chances. And I thought for me that, you know, and this was the thing I was writing about yesterday, the contrast between Arsenal and any other, so many other teams in the Premier League is they have that player in, in Bakaya Saka that I'm sure we'll come to talk about, who just needs one moment where you fall asleep, one mm. moment where you slip up, and he will kill you for it. At the other end, Arsenal have these players that make up superbly for the mistakes of others. Most notably, I thought Gabriel was outstanding yesterday, mm. um, possibly my man of the match, because that's at 40 minutes is a long period of the game. It was a moment where the tension was was rocketing, where Everton had this belief, played really good counter-attacking defensive football. Um, and he, he was just the man that stood between that and a really awkward situation. And I think if Arsenal, if Everton had got a goal, that game would have looked incredibly different. Could well do. Yeah, I mean, I remember the West Ham game when West Ham went ahead, but that felt a little bit different from the current scenario in which we find ourselves. And, you know, you mentioned... Um, Two points dropped against Burnley earlier. It's Brentford, obviously, but I understand Sorry. why. I understand why Burnley's in your mind. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's say that. And I, I watched an interview with Ben White afterwards. Um, I think it was on Super Sport, which is a channel out of Malaysia. He was being interviewed by David Bentley. It was one of the the people, and he talked about you know how Everton have all the tricks of the trade. They want to slow the game down. They want to slow you down. They want to. They want to make life difficult for you. So you're not playing your natural game. And Arsenal want to play more quickly and move the ball more uh, quickly through the spaces, et cetera, et cetera. But then, you know, you get to that 40-minute mark. And I think you're right to point out that, that Everton did have moments. There was one brilliant Gabriel tackle in particular, which which was quite, uh, quite important in the, in the grand scheme of things. But there's something about this Arsenal team that is hard to quantify because we all understand the um, the way Mikel Arteta, or I think we think we understand the way Mikel Arteta wants the team to play, right? But Alexander Zinchenko is ostensibly Arsenal's left back, right? He picks the ball up in midfield. He dribbles past a couple of players into the right half space in midfield. Then he plays a pass to Gabriel Martinelli, who is Arsenal's left winger, who is basically in the same position over on the right-hand side. The ball goes to Ben White, comes back to Zinchenko. He spots Bakayo Saka, makes the pass, and we can talk about Saka in a few moments. But how, when you are someone like Everton, when you're well-drilled, well-organized, well-disciplined. How do you deal with that kind of chaotic movement? Because, like, if you're the right-back, where's where does Seamus Coleman go there? Does he follow Martinelli mm. all the way over? 
you know, who is the the right midfield? I think it was Iwobi, was it? You know, does he follow uh, Zinchenko all the way into midfield? There is this sort of unpredictability, a kind of predictable unpredictability, if you like, that Zinchenko is doing some crazy shit that turns out to be fantastic. But even if you know as an opposition side that this is what they're going to try and do, stopping it is another thing entirely. Yeah, not least because, you know, these are players that all ask different, you know, maybe not fund- fundamentally different, but variations on the same question to an Everton defender. And I think in that move, you can almost sort of see, is it Mikolenko just sort of looks mm. and goes, you know, what, what the fuck do I do with this guy? <laughs> you know, this is, I'm I'm here dealing with Saka, who's, you know, predominantly left foot. He's going to be attacking me on my right foot. Now I've got Martinelli, Saka, because it's, when you kind of, when, when I think when we try and explain it, it sounds chaotic, but there is a clear organisation and mm. rhyme and reason. And, and it has to be said, even when Nketiah was in the team, I thought most notably against Brentford, Martinelli was starting this this ever-growing drift out wide to the right. I think on that occasion, they were really trying to use Xhaka mm. and Zinchenko pinned further out to the left. I mean, this always changes move by move. Um, and I think part of it is merely just the the synchronicity, the flow of a team that's um, that's played so many games together, they know they know what gaps to plug. Was Xhaka centre-forward for that particular move as well? And you've got Trossard, uh, what is it, paint on his boots on the uh, on the left flank as mm. well. It's, I think the challenge is it's, it's not as chaotic as it sounds. And, and these players are so used to giving and going and moving at, at lightning fast pace. I don't know how you how you defend that beyond just having so many bodies back that the passes aren't on. And I think in that particular move, I think it probably reflects a sort of mental fatigue on Everton's part that they've spent 40 minutes reacting to the moments that Martinelli's come across to the right. The the Trossard has gone out to the left wing that basically there's a moment where they go, Oh fuck left that big spot right (laughs) on the right corner of the penalty area. Uh, It's Bakayo Saka there. Um, Yeah. It, that they ask so many questions. And I think what we have to remember when we look back on the Brentford games, the Newcastle games, is it, it, more it was just that those teams answered the questions Arsenal yeah. asked of them. That's really hard. And you've got to play really well to even do it for 40 minutes, let alone 90. Yeah, I've got, I've got a still here. I'm just looking at it. It is, you know, Martinelli in the right wing position, the left back in central midfield in the Odegaard position, Saka's in maybe the inside right, and then you've got Odegaard, Shaq is the centre forward, Trossard outside him. I mean, that is, even if you stay in your uh, banks of four or five or whatever it is, it's like, well, where are they going to go from here and who goes with them? And that brings us to what happens when Zinchenko plays the pass to Bakayo Saka. The first touch is fantastic with his left foot onto his right foot. I'm having none of the, well, a goalkeeper shouldn't be beaten at his no. near post. Absolutely none of that, because there's an angle that you see in the replay from behind where the pace and precision of this, like you're literally talking an inch or two at most that shaves the post and, you know, flies beyond the goalkeeper into the roof of the net, rustles the roof of the net. But Kyosaka went to the corner flag, did his Thierry Henry tribute uh, celebration, right? And I don't want anyone to come at me by saying, I'm not saying Bakayo Saka is the new Thierry Henry or anything like that. But there are games 
where special players or top talent can produce something in an instant that changes the complexion of a game. And we talked about the Zinchenko pass and the Arsenal movement and how good all of that is. But without the finish, without the movement and the the finish from Bakayo Saka, it you know, I don't mean to say it means nothing, but you know, this is this is what you've got to finish that with. It's an unbelievable goal. It's an unbelievable finish from a player of 21 years of age. 19 goal contributions. It could be more, actually. 11 and 9 is 20 goal contributions uh, in all competitions this season from Bakayo Saka. He's 21 years of age. And you you just need players like that to blow the bloody doors off if we're going to um, make it the Italian job type thing. What he's doing this season is just sensational, isn't it? It's it's hard to it's hard to quantify exactly what kind of influence he's having on this team because it goes well beyond what he's actually produced, the goals, the assists. It is the the fact that the opposition look at him and go, Oh fuck. How how can we deal with this? Because it is he's the kind of player who who kills you in an instant. And that's so, so rare. I, I think you're really right to, to hit on the Thierry Henry uh, comparison. And I suspect suspect Thierry Henry might well agree with that as well. Um, when on, And he was not the only one. And that's the reason why this Arsenal team were invincible. So when Henry was at the club, mm. you know, this is a world-class performer. Upper, upper, upper echelon. I mean, frankly, the best player in the world. Saka's not that at the moment. Um, but it's... It's that thing about the truly global elite, the best players in the Premier League and by extension the world, they are the ones that when you make half a mistake, it is punished to the maximum capacity. Mm. Um, That is the level of Robin Van Persie at his greatest. I'm going to try not just to name the ones that left in horrible circumstances. Henri, um, you know, those sorts of forwards. And I think you have to have Saka at that level. I mean, De Bruyne was the other one um, a few weeks ago. Arsenal made a mistake. Um, it's normally those sorts of things go unpunished, mm. but he manages to hook on the run this beautiful goal. Uh, similarly with with Saka, you know, Everton do make a mistake, but they scramble and they recover. And I think you see on that replay that Mikolenko is is moving quickly to to close it down. And so Hack, Saka has to take it on his right foot. There isn't time to sort of take a touch, open his body, and and bend it in the mm. far corner. And like you say, look, if Pickford had got a fingertip on that ball, the fingertips ending up in the net as well as the, the ball, it's rollicked into the, the top right-hand corner. There's nothing Pickford can do about it. And yeah. that is, that's what world-class talent does. You give it an opening and it exploits it. And I think, look, that's, you know, Saka is one of the best players in the world. There's, there's no sense debating it. I, I would put him in the, you know, the very highest echelon of, of Premier League footballers, and he's doing all this at, at 21. Um, I think to an extent, his youth almost becomes this thing that that means we we devalue mm. his qualities because we assume he's not the finished product. He might be, like it, it, because a lot of players don't get better than this, and this is a world class level. Whether he's got room to grow or not, you know, only he really knows. But um, what I know for certain is that right now Arsenal have one of the sort of best half dozen footballers in the Premier League, one of the best dozen in the world. Um, I would quite probably, it's the sort of thing you say that you don't enjoy, but I feel like I would quite enjoy ranking players that I think are better than Bukayo Saka. And I feel like I would run out pretty really quickly, quickly. Yeah. 
yeah. really, really quickly. This guy is is phenomenal, and yet it's. I think, frankly, it's a matter of time before we talk about him. If he's, you know, and he's signing the contract and everything, so hopefully the time is there. Mm. It's a matter of time before we talk about him on the level of Henri, Bergkamp, Wright, whoever these players are that mean the most to you and that, mm. that you think are the greatest in Arsenal history. If he carries on at the level he's at right now. For sure. And the fact that he's come via the academy and through the academy just adds that little bit of extra flavour to it. You know, it's it's just so enjoyable watching him and watching him develop and dealing with all the things you have to deal with as a Premier League player. You know, it's really, really tough to do it at the top level, to do it at the highest level, you know. And I think he, uh, we've talked about this, you know, the physical aspects of some of the treatment he gets, you know, he never lets it rustle him. He never lets it really... Uh, get on top of his game, like we saw him a couple of weeks ago react at Aston Villa, and I was really glad to see that because you also need that bit of edge. You need that bit of bastardry, you know, to be a really top-class ca- uh, player. Henri had it, Bergkamp had it, Vieira had it. Even Perez, to an extent, he was maybe a bit more subtle about it, but yeah. they all have that. They all have that unwillingness to be pushed around by some lump at left back or center half or whatever it might be, you know, and he's, he's developing that on top of the contributions he's making. And of course, you know, he was alive and alert to the fact that Idrissa Gay was dilly dallying on the ball, poked the ball through to Martinelli, Martinelli scores VAR, which of course we all love, (laughs) (laughs) you know, uh, ruled the goal, Onside, but again, it's it's the anticipation that he has in the in the final third to just sort of well look, we'll see, we'll we'll pounce, we'll try and force a mistake. The mistake was there, and like you say, it was ruthlessly uh, punished by both Saka and Martinelli. Yeah, I mean, it, it's quite excellent, and and like you say, I think to an extent, Saka. I mean, it's hard to sort of call because Gay's taking much too much time on the on the ball there and he, he really needs to get rid. But I think there's also this thing where you feel Saka breathing down the back of your neck. Um, you know, if you go and look at his metrics, he ranks so high for things. And this is again, what makes him mm. incredibly special as a forward player. He ranks so high for, on things like pressures, interceptions, tackles. The thing that still stands out to me is one of the best moments I've seen from Saka. I want to say it was, I should remember it better as I think it's one of the best moments he said, but I, I want to say it was the Villa game where he's crocked, he's been kicked left, right and centre, he's angry um, and Villa are on a counter and he's hurtling back like on one leg, doing everything he can to to, to block off those lanes. Mm. And I think that that's another thing, you know, that's representative of the attitude, not just of him, I think, but of this whole team. And I thought there were so many other occasions where you would see in that, early 40 minutes you'd see the whole Arsenal team scramble back and mm. just about quell out a dangerous counter but yeah it's um, I, I, I think it's it's just a really sloppy moment from Everton again that's punished to the maximum by Arsenal and um, fair play to VAR I, I, for once I thought they actually carried out that review quite effectively and it was done in about a minute um, I, I, again, I can't speak for what it's like in the stadium, and I know there are plenty that just would be happy to get rid of the whole thing. Mm. I think we do kind of 
we should expect this as the standard, but it, I think it, it so infrequently hits yeah. that. It's worth noting out that like this is what we want from VAR, that it quickly checks, it makes a, a decision, mm. and we can just move on with our lives. We don't spend three minutes hanging around waiting for yeah. uh, someone to 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 check the uh, check what star sign. Exactly. The, the the thing is at home, you know, we at least get a few replays yeah. and we can see and we can make our own judgments. And the minute they put in the close-up, I was like, oh, this is a goal. This has to be a goal because he's he's onside. And look, 2-0 obviously changes the complexion of a game. Um, like I said at the start, I, I wasn't expecting to be 2-0 up. And it gives you a, a very solid, if not necessarily 100% comfortable lead, but I think it was necessary and important for Arsenal to try and um, shake some of those shackles off, you know, whatever nervousness the the team was feeling. Those two goals I was hoping would then, you know, release them a bit. And I think that happened in the second half. The other thing that I think we have to talk about in terms of the second half is the introduction of Thomas Partey ahead of Jorginho. And I'm not saying this as a way to do down Jorginho, who's been, you know, good in, in the last number of games. But Partey's influence on that second half was sensational. I think he was absolutely key to the control and dominance that Arsenal had. The way he moved the ball more quickly through midfield, when you, you get a half a second extra to make a pass, it starts to pull the opposition around the place. And Everton really weren't at the races in the second half. I know there was a moment when McNeil had a shot and Ramsdale made a good save. It wasn't brilliant defending from Arsenal. But overall, the second half was well-controlled. Arsenal played them off the park, and, and I think Partey played a huge role in that. Yeah, I, I think one of the things Everton had done really well in those first 40 minutes was to apply the pressure to Jorginho to challenge him to whether it's burst past uh, mm. the Everton press or just know where the pass is. And it's natural in both cases. We know he doesn't have a great burst of pace, but also uh, he doesn't necessarily, he isn't necessarily fully on the wavelength in the same way that Partey is, mm. where he would just know if I hit the ball here. And he, he tries and we've really seen some excellent interlinking with, yeah. with Saka. We saw some of that, but it was just a little overcooked, a slightly off day for Jorginho. But, but Partey just adds that little bit of press resistance to the, the Arsenal midfield, doesn't he? You can't just overpower him mm. physically. You can't make your mark on him in the way that Anana maybe did on, on Jorginho in the first half. And I think we also have to caveat that by saying, um, I think Everton's heads were very much at, we've got Nottingham Forest this weekend. Let's not do anything daft. Let's not dive in, get embarrassed by Partey and maybe pick up a red card. But he just he fit into that system like a, a glove, like we knew he would, and um, I think that's hugely helpful, not just for Bournemouth, but for uh, coming into March and April. Um, wrap him up in cotton wool. I'm yeah. sure it'll be Mikel Arteta's view. You do want those extra goals, though, because two nil can become two one, can become a very scary, frantic last ten minutes and or fifteen the goal minutes. Difference as well with City. Well, yeah, that's very true. That is very true. Um, the third goal from Martin Odegaard, I really like this finish, actually, because he's had a couple of moments in the last few weeks where he's had chances on his left foot and they haven't been taken as clinically as you know his talent um, can normally do. You know, there was one at Everton where he put it over the bar. I think they scored a few a few minutes later. Um, but this was lovely, I think, the way Shaka played in Trossard. Trossard, who has been really effective in the last couple of games. 
Uh, Arteta spoke about it a bit afterwards, the, the not quite unlocking of Martinelli, but how it allows Martinelli to, to operate and to move from outside to in, which I think he enjoys doing and does so very effectively. Trossard pulls it back for, for Odegaard, um, using the weight of the ball with his right foot just to guide it into the net. Um, lovely movement, lovely pass, lovely finish, and just a sort of goal that um, I think the performance deserved. And, and Odegaard is now on, I think, nine goals, which when you consider some of the criticisms of him, um, it doesn't shoot enough, isn't clinical enough. And, you know, I think he would say himself, he probably should have two or three more goals to his name this mm. season, not least the one against Aston Villa. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's another telling contribution from from the captain. Yeah, it's been a curious few weeks for him where, above all else, I've just felt like his ball striking has uh, just been a little bit off. I mean, the most obvious example of that, as you say, was the Villa goal, but you know, passes that Erdegaard would normally sort of deliver to you and you'd almost not even have to control them because mm. they've been judged so perfectly. We're either just coming a bit heavy or a bit light. And that, that really changed um, in the second half. I got the sense that this was a half of football for, for Erdegaard and for Arsenal where a little bit of the, the tension eased. I don't think either of the games against Villa or, or Leicester were ideal opportunities for any of these players to enjoy their football um <laughs> you know there was fighting spirit there was some some degree I mean there was a significant degree of dominance against uh Leicester but it was uh not the most fun um the passes weren't always clicking together and and I think I mean yeah the the goal is is beautifully taken and there's so many other moments that the Premier League can't delete off social media quickly <sighs> enough Absolutely isn't, baffling. Isn't it Let the us most, see the slide tackle Isn't click. it the most counterintuitive thing? Like, I get, you know, there are rights and there are rights holders and there are all those kinds of things. But as a, like, you couldn't pay for marketing that good where you've got, like, hundreds of people just going, oh, my God, look what this player did in the Premier League and – it go, it goes beyond football fans. It goes everywhere because these clips get so many views. Like they're you know it, it's it crosses all borders if you like where people can go that is that is incredible and I don't know if it's like using a sledgehammer to crack a nut kind of a thing because they have to sort of um, take down everything that goes up goals and whatever it might be but. It was a bit like the same with the World Cup as well, where there were these moments in the World Cup that you're looking at going, Jesus, this is like, just spread it all around the world and let people see, people who don't love football or who don't know football, let them see things like this and and go, hey, you know what? This could be this could be quite fun. That, I mean, the, the bit you're talking about is the the slide, tackle, Cruyff, turn, back, flick, <laughs> whatever. I don't know what to call it because I've never seen it. It's literally the sort of thing that I would show to my fiance, and she would sort of go, "Yeah, that's that's quite good, James." And then like go on <laughs> with her day to day life. But at some stage, I know, I know she'd be thinking, "Yeah, it was actually quite good, to be fair." I have to say, um, who is this blonde Adonis? <laughs> no, that's we don't need her thinking about that. <laughs> she has a blonde fiance. She doesn't need anyone else. Um, it's it. it I think it's all the more baffling that obviously this is a game that wasn't televised in the UK. So it's not Sky and, and BT and that lot. They can't even show it. They mm. can't They can't clip it up for social. Like, I mean, there's other sports do this so much better. Um, the NBA is one where when you wake up in the morning, 
you can't help but have these three-pointers or these dunks thrown in your face. And mm. it's a great way of marketing the league. I mean, yet yeah, let the world see Martin Erdegaard in full flow and um, and wait, just wait. I mean, also, if anyone from Arsenal Socials uh, listening to this, I'm sure they will already have clipped it up and be ready and raring to go with their their tweets. And I will be liking and I will be retweeting the shit out of it. All right. Well, look, here here's a great thing um, that one of our Discord uh, users, his name is Robotten. He said, after we win the ball from Odegaard's Cruyff sliding tackle, we do not lose the ball and make 19 passes before Gabriel Martinelli makes it 4-0 one minute and 10 seconds later and every outfield player except Big Gabby touches the ball. I mean, this is the sort of... Yeah, I mean, isn't isn't that sort of... It makes that fourth goal all the more beautiful when you look at it in the cold light of day. It starts with that exceptional moment from Martin Odegaard. The team passed the ball around on the commentary. I think it's Andy Townsend who was on the commentary I was watching mm. with, um, with with Peter Drury. And he's saying, oh, well, yeah, the Everton lads, they're doing the sensible thing. They're just getting back into shape here. And all of a sudden, Inkedia makes a move. Zinchenko finds the pass. Little ball to the near post. And Gabriel Martinelli nutmegs Jordan Pickford to make it 4-0. Just beautiful and I've got a sort of follow-up question on this with regards to the kind of football that Arsenal are playing at the moment but you you, you this is where it's so, maybe the value of social media and things like that come into play afterwards because you watch that in real time and you go yeah that was good really like that but then when someone analyzes it when someone examines it and goes into the nuts and bolts of it and and how involved everybody on that pitch was, apart from poor Big Gabby. Although he did give a very generous round of applause to, to Martin Odegaard when he that's did a, that. When he that's did a that. pre-assist. That's a pre-assist. He'll give him that. Um, you know, it's just a it's just a brilliant goal. A great way to wrap up uh, the scoring on what was a, a really really good night for Arsenal. Oh, it's fantastic! And and what what you love about those goals? And Arsenal have scored a few. My suspicion is that's not even the most passes they've had. Uh, leading to a goal this season. I, I swear there was one that was around the 21-22 mark, which uh, shows you something about how elegant the football is. Mm. Um, but th- there's always so many little things you can take away from it. I thought for me, Nketiah's involvement, um, almost more valuable than him scoring a goal, much as I, I doubt he, I don't know what he would think. Uh, it wouldn't shock me if he doesn't agree. But, but <laughs> just to, to show that he can contribute in mm. build-up as a substitute, which I think were both things that we had questions about, you know, can Nketiah be as effective off the bench? We mm. necessarily didn't see that against Leicester. I thought for me that was a, a really encouraging aspect. But obviously, you know, when you when you watch this back, it's like, take your pick. Martinelli now, 11 goals. Um, mm. Like, And going back to what you were saying about Erdegaard, you've almost got this... It, it, I imagine Arsene Wenger is very much smiling at seeing all the players off the striker finally deliver the... 10 plus goals that he said every season was what his team needed. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a, you know, I was doing a, a little bar chart of, of where all the goals are coming from. And it's, mm. um, it's a, there's a very pleasant race between Erdegaard, Saka and, and um, Martinelli for top scorer. And you never know, maybe Gabriel Jesus will well, look throw at- his hat into the ring in a few weeks. Eddie's on nine as well. You know, I know mm. he hasn't scored in the last few weeks, but you know, in all competitions, he's got nine goals too. So, you know, like you say, Martinelli, 11, Saka 10, Odegaard and Nketi on nine. You know, Arsenal are looking maybe at getting four four players well into double figures. It's it, that, that, that is how a team like City won the league 
before they had Erling Haaland. Yeah. It, it is a formula that works. I mean, we don't know if it will work because it would certainly help to have an Erling Haaland as well. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I think when Jesus comes back, he probably will get double figures as well. I mean, and that yeah, is yeah. that is excellent um, and a really encouraging sign and uh, shows Arsenal can... That it gives you the sense that there's always going to be a player that has the game that mm. can win you the match. And um, I think that that is massive for Arsenal yeah. as they try and get the however many wins they need. So having shaken off those shackles and, and played really well in that second half and, you know, not quite looking ahead to Bournemouth, I, I'm sort of curious as to your thoughts on the overall development of this team and the type of football that they play. And I was reminded of Mikel Arteta's first interview when he was asked, what what kind of philosophy do you have? And he said, there are some things that have to be a blueprint. We have to have passion. We have to be dominant. We have to be aggressive. We have to play in the opponent's territory as much as we want. I want the ball. I want to attack them as much as possible. I want to prevent them from attacking me as much as possible. There have been periods where it's been hard to see exactly how that was going to happen under Mikel Arteta. But it's fair to say, I think, that we are well and truly there now, which isn't to say that Arsenal are the finished product by any means. I think there's still a way to go. I think we can still improve. But this is very much a team in the... um, how do you say it? Like, this is what the manager's vision was when he came in. How he was going to get there, how long it was going to take him to get there, I'm sure he was unsure about all those things. But he always knew where he wanted to go. Uh, the word that really strikes me there, maybe it's because they have it up on the big screen at the Emirates. Um, and in some new montage they've added, because everyone adds new montages once every month, um, is aggression. Yeah. Um, and I think we always think of aggression as an, an off-the-ball concept and we see so much of that in the assertive forwards front-footed way that um gabriel saliba and, and ben white and the like defend but i think there's a part of aggression that is just way you know the wave after wave of purposeful um fast quick moving mm. attacking football um that snaps at defenses and tires them out wears them out physically and emotionally and I, I saw so many signs of that in the second half, as much as it was sort of being played out to this very relaxed, you know, the Ole football, quite literally. Um, there is a, a real sense that once Arsenal get at you, they don't stop. Uh, and, and frankly, they didn't stop until the 90th minute here. Um, that to me is a is probably the thing that's most, feels like the biggest culture shift in terms of where Arsenal were before Arteta and where they are now. Mm. Um, and I think stands them in the best stead for the next 14 games and the years, uh, is it 14 or 13? Um, and and the years to come mm. is that, you know, right now, uh, and if you compare it to how Pep Guardiola viewed his team a few weeks back, I think there's just that thing where nothing feels like it's quite enough for Arsenal. You know whether that is the three, four forwards uh, in the in the, the race for their own scoring golden boot within the club, um, whether it is you know always wanting to to get that extra goal, um, never kind of willingly accepting a clean sheet, never accepting sloppiness like we saw from Saliba and Gabriel at, at the King Power, um, that is a a really propulsive force 
uh, for Arsenal Football Club. And mm. I think it's for me, it's the thing that that I always wondered if Arteta would be able to do because I always felt it was quite ingrained within Arsenal that it was quite a comfortable club. Mm. I don't get the sense it's comfortable. In, no. In the best way possible. I yeah. don't get the sense it's comfortable anymore. No, I agree, I agree. And like, there's a moment right at the very end where Aaron Ramsdale desperate to keep his clean sheet, yeah. makes a brilliant save, then makes another recovery save. Like the, don't think Dave has made the most of that. But who's there to clear the ball away? Gabriel Martinelli, who's come back from the, you know, way upfield on the right wing because he moved to the right when Smith Rowe came on. Um, you know, that I think that tells you plenty about the commitment that he's, that he's getting from these players. Just a couple of quick things to finish. Good to see Emil Smith Rowe get some minutes. Um, these are going to be important uh, over the coming weeks because the schedule will ramp up. There is Europe to contend with now as well. So using the squad to the maximum possible is going to be uh, a key part of how we keep our form going domestically while competing in Europe. And, you know, he's been a long time out, really. You know, Smith Rowe only played a few minutes um, at the start of the season. He's been out ever since. But good to see him get back look a bit lively. I think the touch isn't quite there yet, but but that will come with games. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly will. It, it has been a, a tough time for Smith-Rowe, who I, so often in, in games when it's not quite going right for Arsenal, mm. you get the sense that he could be a player off the bench or in the starting eleven that could just offer something a little bit different um, in terms of committing yeah. opponents and, and dribble. He is, I would... I mean, it's hard to say when you've got Saka and Martinelli, but he is certainly up there with the best dribblers in the club um, and has a slightly different way of, of beating them. He also has that that quality that, again, Erdegaard has to an extent, but when the ball drops on the edge of the box and certainly did last season, Smithrow was so often there with that mm. low-placed finish into the bottom corner. You, you, Arsenal will almost certainly need him. There will almost certainly be a game in the Premier League where his impact makes a profound difference. And yes, yeah, it's, it's perfect timing because I, I would assume he will figure from the off in at least one of those sporting games. I mean, the, mm. the, the first leg is coming around quite soon. Yeah. It wouldn't shock me if Arteta goes fairly strong on that one. But yeah, uh, a, a big, big, big boost because it's a, a tough March and especially April. For sure. Coming up. Um, the last thing I just wanted to touch on was something quite interesting from the press conference where I think it was Art de Roche was asking about, uh, there was a previous question about Trossard unlocking Martinelli and Arteta spoke about Martinelli and Vieira. They have like this friendship because they're so close, blah, blah, blah. And Art said something like, we haven't really seen them play very close together on the pitch. And he interjected, Arteta. He very rarely does that. He, he interjected and said, you will. You will. And, you know, they carried on. And then you can see the answer that he gives in, in, in the transcript. But we've seen him enter games um, for Granite Xhaka. And, I, you know, this. I don't want to make this like Vieira must replace Xhaka or Vieira is the Xhaka replacement. You know, that's not a conversation I think we need to have. But clearly... It seems that Mikel Arteta views Vieira as somebody whose influence and readiness for football at this level is is growing. And when he says Martinelli and Vieira, if we you will see them play close together, Martinelli's going to play on the left, yeah. which means that 
the Xhaka position is where you would envisage Vieira playing close to him, unless you sort of decided to make him into another Zinchenko or something, who knows? But um, it's an interesting one to consider because, you know, the physical profile of the players is very different, but on the ball, maybe Vieira just gives you a little more nimbleness, if that's the right way of expressing that. Uh, And again, I'm not downplaying Jack or saying, you know, we've got to get rid of him or anything like that. But I'm just thinking, you know, when you see a player start to get introduced in a certain position and it starts to happen, you know, every week, every week, every week, it suggests that there's a little bit of a plan there. Yeah. The first thing I'd want to say is, um, as ever, Art asks really good questions. Mm. Um, So I want a bit of a shout out for a, a friend of mine there as it's come up. Um, yeah, and I thought that was really interesting to see Arteta dive in there because yeah. there was a time quite recently where um, Arteta was maybe apologising for Vieira or explaining away, and I think there are you know there are perfectly reasonable explanations there. He has come to a new league, a physical league, and um, he he is was never been and probably never will be. Mm a player that you would trust in a uh, 50-50 or you would trust jockeying with an opponent, but but very notably, um, and he has asked a lot about Vieira, um, he has stopped kind of explaining why he's not selecting Vieira and sort of indicated why he's going to select him very soon. Mm. Maybe the Bournemouth game, a game where you would kind of think that Arsenal could really assert their will and play 60% of the game in the Bournemouth third of the pitch uh, would be perfect for him uh, as a player that can just unlock, that can interlink Mm. and he will give you something different. We see often that uh, as much as Xhaka sometimes plays at centre forward and sometimes plays, I mean, God, this guy does play everywhere at left back and sometimes (laughs) plays, uh, you know, as a left central midfielder, radical concept. Um, You do see Xhaka as well, pushing out wide onto that left touch line. I wonder if that might be um, an idea that, that Arteta has in his mind with um, with Vieira. I don't want to sort of put everything in this thing of Pep's done it, so Arteta must like it because they are more different than, than people give him credit for. Mm. But like last season, it was really notable uh, and before how often Bernardo Silva was kind of almost used as this outside, you know, sticking his himself very wide on mm. the left flank from a nominal left eight position seems to me that that would be a great use of a lot of Vieira's skill sets, his his crossing, his um, his ability to interlink and his nice little burst of pace. So, yeah, I'm really excited for the, the, the moment that it does happen and it seems from what Arteta's saying that it, it's coming soon. Um, maybe it'll be against Bournemouth, maybe it'll be in the Europa League, but yeah. um, it's going to happen sooner or later. And obviously this was kind of the plan all along when they signed it. Yeah, look, it's exciting to think about the team having a bit more variation and how that variation might be deployed, not just in the Europa League, but how it might change the dynamic of games, depending on who we're facing or if we need to change something in a game, having these options from the bench, as we've said all season long, will be will be absolutely vital. Look, we better leave it there as ever. Great to talk to you, James. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Thank you very much indeed to James. You can find him on Twitter. He is at James Benj, at James Benj. So that is just about that for this particular episode. Hope you enjoyed the show. Hope you're enjoying being five points clear at the top of the table. We do have Bournemouth to come this weekend, another home game. As I said, we'll preview that over on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash arseblog. But we will make it free and available to everybody on Friday just to make sure that you have something to listen to. So... Until then, take it easy, enjoy your Thursday, and we will catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers, bye-bye. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 